I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 11, Kingdom by Tyranny. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And thank you so much to Kitus for signing up already. Also, you can help others find this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. This episode, we will be taking a quick tour of the Iberian Peninsula from about the late 700s until around 858 AD. We will touch upon points that may have been passed over in previous episodes. It will also serve to bring everything up to speed to where we left it off on episode 8, with the death of Alfonso II. And now, let's get started. In the first century of Umayyad rule, we find evidence that in the Emirate of Al-Andalus, there was a gradual move away from large armies of part-time soldiers, which characterized the early Islamic State, to reliance on much smaller groups of professional soldiers recruited from outside Al-Andalus. They were known by the Arabs as Al-Hudds, the Silent Ones, for their inability to speak Arabic. This process was to define the character of the later Umayyad state and account for much of its strengths and its weaknesses. This move away from levies and volunteers as the main military force of the kingdom is considered to be one of the main features of state formation at this time. But this transition from part-time warriors to full-time professional soldiers came at a cost. 
and I mean that literally. Tagging along with this professionalization came the problem of funding for the military. Interestingly, one of the main sources of income for the military came in the form of payments from the population that wanted to be excused from military service that was traditionally expected from them. The Emirate was able to collect taxes from its population in a myriad of different ways that were not going to get bogged down in exploring. The upshot of it all is that taxes were not collected evenly geographically nor demographically. Geographically, it seems like most of the tax revenue was collected in the south of the kingdom. And demographically, the tax obligations of Christians were very heavy in comparison with those of their Muslim neighbors. The area in the Guadalquivir Valley and further south were the main resource base of the Umayyad emirs. But the further away from the capital one got, the weaker the emir's influence became. If the last two episodes have taught us anything, it's that the Umayyads spent more time trying to assert their control over the northern areas of Al-Andalus than they did over the lands of the Christians. Our sources make no mention of regular financial contributions from the frontier areas, which indicates that a large area of the kingdom remained outside the fiscal control of the government. And this fiscal independence fueled a lot of the political separatism that we have encountered thus far. In a way, this was dictated by military necessity, since local commanders had to be able to respond to Christian raids without waiting for help from Cordoba. As many gains as it made, the consolidation of Umayyad power in the south and center of Iberia had not extended to the north. Here, the tough reality was that the imposition of Umayyad authority was damn near impossible. So the emirs had little choice but to negotiate with the independent leaders slash warlords of those areas. Moreover, the political landscape was complicated even further by the presence of the independent Christian powers to the north and the complex interactions between them and the northern Muslim powers. In the west of the peninsula, the frontier remained relatively stable. There were, of course, countless raids by both sides in the no-man's land that divided them. But Umayyad territory did not extend beyond the central mountain range. Not really. Though Christians did manage to hold on, barely, to some outposts on the northern edge of the plains, like the old Roman fortifications at Lyon and Astorga. In the east, local Christians, with some support from the Franks, were able to take over Girona in 785 and Barcelona in 801, while in 799, Pamplona was conquered by the Basques and gradually developed into the new kingdom of Navarre. Barcelona and Girona were incorporated into the Frankish Empire and became the centers of the Spanish March. The early 9th century saw further Carolingian attacks as the Franks attempted to follow up on the conquest of Barcelona, 
According to Frankish sources, Louis the Pious made three attempts to conquer Tortosa, but Tortosa was successfully relieved by Abdalahman and our old friend Amrus bin Yusuf. And so, Frankish power was halted. From this point, Muslim control was limited to the Ebro Plains, and the frontier of Ada I remained basically the same in this area for the next 300 years. Unlike the Christians, the Muslims made no substantial territorial gains. But they launched numerous raids on Christian lands. These raids were usually launched at Galicia, the Leon area, or Barcelona. But it seems like the most common objective was the area of Alva, and the district that Muslim authors began to refer to as the Land of the Castles, which was later to become the nucleus of Old Castile. These raids varied between periods of intense action and times when there are no expeditions on record at all. As we saw in an earlier episode, Hisham I, reinforcing his image of Islamic leadership, sent a bunch of expeditions between 791 and 795. But his successor, Al-Hakam I, barely paid attention to raiding, since, you know, the never-ending string of revolts and massacres occupied most of his time. Abdallahman II sent expeditions in 823, 825, and 826. But then, there's a 12-year gap, all the way until 838, when all we see are sporadic raids until the end of his reign. Launching raids against Christians was an important sign of strong leadership and authority over the Muslim community, and their purpose was as much ideological as military. Interestingly, after 838, there seems to have been a change in policy in regards to military leadership. The raids were now led by members of the emir's immediate family, including his brothers and later his sons. So, raiding was being used as a tool to enhance the prestige of the ruling family and to give the princes both valuable field experience and useful contacts, such as with non-Muslim mercenary groups. In this time, there was no intention of conquering the Christian north. There simply was no point in wasting the vast amounts of wealth and men to take these impoverished and underdeveloped areas, though attempts were made to retake lost territory like Pamplona and Barcelona, since those areas were, you know, actually worth fighting for. Given the fragmented and antagonistic nature of the political landscape of the Iberian Peninsula, a number of border regions naturally formed. These were known as marches, and a march is basically a buffer zone between states. These buffer zones were usually militarized, and depending on time and place, served as neutral zones that really didn't belong to one side or the other. Iberia was divided into three marches, the lower, middle, and upper march. In theory, 
The Muslims of these marches had the responsibility of defending their areas against Christian attack and supporting any expeditions the emir might make into Christian territory. And I will be posting a map of these marches in the Facebook group. The lower march was centered on the open plains and wide landscapes of Extremadura. Apart from the capital city of Merida, it was largely a rural area where scattered castles and fortified villages were the only settled habitations. Few Arabs lived here, and the majority of the politically active population were Berbers and powerful Muwalad landowners. The term Muwalad was usually used by Arabs to describe someone of mixed Arab and Berber ethnicity. It's thought that most of the Berbers were probably semi-nomadic or transhuman pastoralists, and tribal structures naturally survived here for longer than in more settled areas. The Middle March was centered on Toledo. There had been little Arab settlement here, and the dominant group of the former capital city were local powerful families, who, as we have seen, fought tooth and nail to keep power in their hands. Outside the city walls, it seems that the plains and mountains were dominated by Berber shepherd tribes. The Upper March was based on the Ebro Valley with its capital city of Zaragoza. But there were other cities besides the capital, such as Tudela, Huesca, Calatayud, and Tortosa, and they were all towns of some significance. The Muslims controlled the plains to the north of the Ebro, but the valleys and mountains to the north remained in possession of the indigenous Christian population. So, what we have in this area is a more complicated mix of peoples, including some Berbers and some very powerful Muwalad families. There was also a considerable Arab population in Zaragoza itself. And add to all of this the complicated relations these cities had with the Christians, notably with the rulers of Navarre and the Franks. In the Ebro Valley, the Benukasi retained their power and their semi-autonomous state. By the end of the 8th century, they appear in Arabic sources as leading magnates of the Upper Ebro. And they had close relations with the Christian kings of Pamplona, with whose family they intermarried and who may have provided them with Basque soldiers for their armies. Initially, the Benukasi were friendly with Abdallahman II, but if you'll recall last episode, Musa bin Musa of the Benukasi and an Umayyad commander had a falling out on their way to raid Narbonne. Consequently, Musa bin Musa, who was the leader of the family, gave the Umayyads the finger by allying himself with the king of Navarre. But in 844, in a show of good faith, he was able to do Abdallahman a solid when the Vikings attacked Seville by reinforcing the emir's army. By the end of Abdallahman's reign, Musa bin Musa had re-established his power. And get this, according to the Chronicle of Alfonso III, he called himself the third king of Spain, the other two being the king of the Asturias and the emir of Córdoba. 
Musa bin Musa was able to deftly use his local power base and crucial position on the frontier to ensure that the emir could not replace him or rule the area without his cooperation. By 844, the city of Zaragoza was conquered by Abdullahman in person and entrusted to his son Muhammad. For the last eight years of his reign, all three capital cities of the border zones, namely Merida, Toledo, and Zaragoza, were either under direct governance of the emir or ruled by men loyal to the regime. However, as we know very well by now, this did not mean that they were the undisputed rulers of all of Al-Andalus. In fact, their authority may not have reached far beyond the walls of the cities. The thing is, we just don't know. And add to that, separatist sentiment was every bit as strong as it had ever been. By the time of Abdullahman II's death in 852, the Umayyad state such as it was in Al-Andalus was firmly established and had actually become a significant power in the Mediterranean world, perhaps surprisingly even maintaining diplomatic relations with the Byzantine Empire. But even with as much progress as the Umayyads made financially, culturally, and militarily, the fact remains that we're dealing with a state that was still at the mercy of the personality, temperament, and intelligence of the monarch. And the deep regional and social divisions that the emirs tried their best to manage still remained embedded in the social fabric like landmines ready to blow up with the slightest misstep of the emir. At the same time, the Christian communities of the north were busy consolidating into legitimate political units in their own right. The most significant of these being, of course, the kingdom of the Asturias. But as significant as the kingdom was in northern Iberia, compared to its powerful neighbors, the Carolingian Franks and the Emirate of Cordoba, honestly, the Asturian kingdom was a poor, underdeveloped marginal kingdom. So, how can a brand new marginal kingdom launch itself onto the world stage and be seen, be heard, and most importantly, be relevant? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the answer to that question is a rather interesting one. The summarized version of this story goes as follows. During the reign of Alfonso II, a mysterious hermit apparently stumbled across the ruins of an ancient tomb. He rushed to inform the bishop of the neighboring town of his discovery. The bishop examined the tomb and declared that this was the tomb of none other than St. James the Apostle, one of the twelve disciples of Christ. Once informed of this truly incredible discovery, the king made his way to the tomb and ordered a church to be constructed on the site, along with a monastery to house monks responsible for maintaining and protecting the tomb, as well as the remains of the apostle. The site was to later be known as Santiago de Compostela. So, the authenticity of this discovery 
is not really taken seriously by historians today. But whether or not a disciple of Christ is actually buried in that location is not really relevant. What is relevant is that most Christians from all over Europe believed it to be true. It was even confirmed by the Pope and Charlemagne as a legitimate find, which provided the small kingdom with a powerful patron saint and made it an important focus of Christian belief. And the importance of this event cannot be understated. As I mentioned in a previous episode, religious relics were a very, very big deal in the medieval era. And in this case, we're not even talking about the usual standard saints that crop up everywhere. This was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ himself. This was huge. And importantly, it was an enormous legitimizing factor for the king and the kingdom of the Asturias. How could it be anything but a sign of divine favor of the highest order? We will leave the story of Santiago de Compostela right here for now, as it will pop in and out of our narrative as we go along. To the east of the kingdom of the Asturias lay the mountains of Basque country. As we have seen, even more than their neighbors to the west, the Basques had resisted incorporation into the Visigothic state, and Muslim influence had been minimal. The sources for the early history of what was to become the Kingdom of Navarre, of course, are very scant. But what we do know is that by the end of the 8th century, a fierce, three-sided competition was raging for control of the city of Pamplona. The three powers were the native Basques, the Franks, and the Umayyads. The Franks controlled the city for most of the period between Charlemagne's first invasion in 778 and 824, when they were finally driven out by the Basques. Now, looking into the future for a little bit, for most of the 9th century, the kings of Pamplona were allies of the Benukasi, to whom they were related to by marriage against both the Franks and the Asturians on one hand and the Umayyads of Córdoba on the other. In the 10th century, the Kingdom of Navarre emerged as a fully-fledged Christian monarchy embracing the area of Pamplona and the Western Pyrenees, but we'll get to that in a later episode. As we've said before, the Franks had been more successful at the eastern end of the Pyrenees. The taking of Girona and Barcelona had been followed by the establishment of what became known as the Spanish March, a frontier region of the Carolingian Empire, ruled by counts based in Barcelona. By the beginning of the 10th century, Al-Andalus was bordered on the north by a string of well-established Christian states. Compared with Al-Andalus, they were in many ways poor and backward. Both literacy and the use of coined money were relatively rare, and there was no equivalent to the state apparatus that had been developed in the Muslim South. However, these states now had political and military structures, which meant that the Muslims were unable to subdue them or just devastate their territories like they used to. 
All these factors helped to set the stage for what happened a century later, when these Christian kingdoms were immediately able to take advantage of the breakup of the Cordoban Caliphate. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Now that we're basically caught up with the Umayyad side with where we left things off on episode 8, it's time we checked back in with the Asturias. As you'll recall, Alfonso II died in 842. But the thing is, Alfonso didn't have any children. So the throne passed on to his predecessor's son, Jamiru. And if you don't remember, his predecessor was Vermudu the deacon. And so, Jamiru I rose to the throne. But we don't know if he was nominated before or after Alfonso died, since we have chronicles that contradict each other on that. But what we do know is rather interesting. See, at the time he was nominated, Jamiru wasn't in the Asturias. He was in Cantabria, busy getting married. And so, naturally, someone else stepped up and snatched the throne for themselves. And that someone was named Neputianus, who was a noble and a member of the royal court. The Chronicle of Alfonso III puts it this way, quote, After the death of Alfonso, Jamiru, the son of Prince Vermudu, is chosen for the kingdom. At that time, he was departing from his own home, and had been brought to the province of Ordunum to receive his wife. While the aforesaid Prince Alfonso departed from this world, Neputianus, the Count of the Palatine, obtained the kingdom by tyranny." End quote. So basically, what the Chronicle is telling us is that Hamidu was elected to be king while in absentia. But as soon as Alfonso died, Neputianus seized power through quote-unquote tyranny. But Neputianus couldn't have just taken the throne on his own. On this, the sources are quite clear. Neputianus obtained the support of the Asturians and the Basques, while Hamidu had the backing of the Galician people, demonstrating once again a clear division of regional interests. According to the Albadense Chronicle, quote, Hamidu entered the city of Lucca in Galicia and assembled an army for himself in the whole province. But after a short time, he made an incursion into Asturias, and Neputianus met him at the bridge of the river Narsea. End quote. Now, that last sentence is significant because the river Narsea will be the geographical boundary that would usually separate Galicia from the Asturias. After the clash, and according to the chronicle of Alfonso III, the forces that backed Nepotianus disbanded and abandoned him. Nepotianus is then reported to have fled to the north of Cangas Dionis, in the heart of the Asturias. Later, he would be captured, blinded, and forced into a monastery. And thus, Jamiru then ascended to the throne of the Asturias and was to be known hereafter as Hamidu I. 
His short eight-year reign would be characterized by frequent internal challenges to his authority by members of the Asturian aristocracy, and externally by the Scandinavians who had been ravaging the Frankish coasts for some time. The territorial expansion of the Asturian monarchs naturally led to an increase in the complexity of the kingdom, and add to that the inability of the monarchs to take complete control of all governmental mechanisms, which in turn led to the accumulation of privileges and power on the part of the aristocracy, particularly the palatial aristocracy. It's through the powerful positions attained in the bureaucratic structure that, from time to time, royal authority was put to the test, as is exemplified by the case of Nepotianus's challenge of Hamidu I. When it comes to the aforementioned Scandinavian attack, the chronicles and Christian sources are, as per usual, lacking in detail, saying only, quote, The Northmen folk previously unknown to us, a pagan and very cruel nation, arrived in our quarters with a naval army, and who had twice fought the Muslims emerging victorious." End quote. Hamidu I would die in 850 AD. His successor was his son from his first marriage, Ordoinu I, who was to become the father of none other than Alfonso III, also known as Alfonso the Great. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.